right. Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. Hey, playwrights. Welcome to Hey Playwright, a podcast about playwriting and life. Tori, I know this is premature, but Happy New Year! <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year! Wow, what an incredible year this has been for Hey Playwright, for us personally, professionally. What are some highlights? <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, we started out the year and we ended the year um, with the two most anticipated theatrical events, right? Because we were super excited about going to see Christians play Monsters of the American Cinema, right? When we read it, we were like, oh my God, we gotta go see this. And we saw that in Seattle in January. And then um, we were like super like dying to see the Brothers Paranormal, right? Yes. We almost went to Alaska. We almost like planned this like wild <laughs> yeah, we trip to did. Alaska, but we came to our senses. It didn't thankfully. pan out. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, and so we got to see the Brothers Paranormal at East West Players, and I think both of those, like, what a what a way to start and end the year, because I think both of those were were really powerful, wonderful experiences for us, um, for the show, but also for us as as fans of theater. Would you say? Would you say oh, that is accurate? Yes. Or would you like to add to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, it it's just. In between, I feel like that's the sandwich. Right? Yeah, 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 totally. We had those two ends, and then all the creamy stuff in between. It's it's creamy it's been pretty magical. I don't know. You know, I was thinking. Um, yeah, our our friend Wendy Waddell, who's a, an actress here in San Diego, when she talks about plays, uh, she would talk about Oreo. <laughs> you know, you have the beginning. <laughs> The end and then the middle is the creamy center. And I'm kind of thinking about that as our year because it, it was just a, such a such a great, tasty year. <laughs> what am I trying to say here? Hey, you, you said something uh, and you mentioned Oreos. And I have to tell you uh, that something my kids taught me. Do you know that, that Hydrox came before Oreos? Do you know that? No, I didn't know that. But yes. And then do you know, do you know about cream betweens? No, what's that? <laughs> is it the same thing? It's yes. Like, it's, Cream, yes, uh, same type of thing. If I'm remembering, like Hydrox has the the really thicker, right? The thicker cream. Am, am I imagining that or am I just... Hi, I mean, they're like Oreos. They're, they were Oreos but before... They were Oreos. They were the OG. Before that baker yeah. stole the recipe or whatever. Yeah, you know... I think crib betweens are new. Hydrox is is it sounds so much like Clorox or hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> I I looked into the whole reason for it, and it was like it was a health choice. I think like I I oh. I'm gonna have to I'll put it in the show notes. There's a there's a whole explanation of why they came up with that name, but they are the original, not Oreo. Wow! And now they're, they're the OG AR. cookie, the yes. OG cream filled yes. chocolate cookie okay you know what i might have to try hydrox i just if i'm remembering correctly didn't uh, oreos used to use lard i think there was a reason why i quit even eating them um and don't need oreos oh i don't know well no i ate them now i don't think they use lard anymore i think it's vegetable just good old 
vegetable shortening, but you know, lard was probably cheaper and I don't know. I could be totally wrong on all of this. Um, but no, I, I think I wanted... there's. I think there is a. Sorry, <laughs> here we go. No, no, we're like off on a is, tangent about. I cookies. think there is. There is a thing about. No, I think Hydrox was trying to make the case that we are the health. You're probably right. I don't know. You know what? We don't want to no, get sued. They're all right. wonderful. They're all magical. And if you love cream betweens, uh, it all started because you said creamy filling. Yes. I don't know what cream betweens sounds. I know. Sexual. I wasn't going to go there, Tori. Sexual. Well, you know me. I'm not afraid to go there. Oh. Oh, so that started our year. That started our year. Yeah. And then then many things happened. Many things happened. (laughs) (laughs) We had had great interviews uh, and other things happened in between. I feel like we both probably enjoyed some readings. Yes. Whatnot in 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 that space and time, and then what did we do? We went to the we Inch went Fest, to the William Inch Festival, where we got yes, to, we did. Where I would say that that was also another theatrical highlight was um, Gina Femia's play. Oh my! Gosh. I don't think I yeah. think between that one and um and the Brothers Paranormal, I don't think that I uh, cried as much. Felt so emotionally charged after play, and and Gina's play is called Mercutio loves Romeo loves Juliet loves. Mm. I oh mm. so beautiful. Oh, what else? What else? Uh. Oh, and then I got to give a shout out to Olympia Family Theater for oh, yeah for making the dream happen at this you know the Secret Garden that was incredible. The, our collaboration began working on it was like a COVID nineteen vaccination promo pieces, and I uh, that was the that was how I started working with them, and I worked with a group of kids. I love working with teenagers um and you know kind of being the scribe to craft the story that they envisioned that to me was i don't know that might have that was like a like right up there that was one of my favorite things to do you know because so often we write for not with but you know but last year i got to write with my kids so so i i hope that i can continue writing with uh, young people so any young people out there you want to like collaborate let's talk let's do yeah, a thing. absolutely i know and uh and that was you know what we were doing at the inch fest getting to do that workshop getting to meet idris goodwin and um have that space with him and that was centered around tya mm-hmm. theater for young audiences so absolutely um, shout out to New Village Arts because I was part of their play festival in April with a their new play festival final draft. Yeah, I I worked on a film. Side oh, that. oh, I know where I I no oh, yes one of the <laughs> bigger parts. Yay! Uh, and that was that was really fun. I'm doing a, another little bit part in a film with Ian Tripp and. Ian Tripp is somebody I met years ago, and they keep bringing me back to do their films, and it's it's so much fun to work with them. Uh, yeah, they 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 approach everything with just such a joy and a love of of filmmaking, and 
super easygoing and fun to work with. Like you don't feel that pressure that you might feel, you know, walking into another set. They are, they're just fun. That's cool. And super laid back. What about you? What else? You've had a, you've done a lot. I don't know. Oh, I got published this year. Oh, yay. Yay. Yeah. You too. Yay. Yay. <laughs> um, but actually, one, I got to give a shout out. The Playground Experiment, which is an organization in New York, uh, put a call out for monologues for the Faces of America monologue festival number four. And my monologue was selected in addition to Lucy Wong, who is a former guest of the show and friend of the show. Um, and our friend Mul- and. and our friend yeah. Mark Mulkerin, yeah. who is a, a friend of the show as well as as well as a former classmate in, in um of both of us of, in different- yeah of both of us of actually you you took a class alongside him with, with Lucy. Lucy and I took yeah. a class with him with today's guest Tori yeah but we'll talk about today's guest in a second because I want to give a shout out um the the Faces of America monologue festival happened in November in New York City and I of course was not able to attend, but they finally made the link available so you can see all of these fantastic monologues, including the one by yours truly. It's called Colonizer. It shows up around the one hour thirteen minute mark thereabouts, and I I think that the um, the person who performed my monologue, Rebecca Rivera. Oh my gosh, what a phenomenal performance, a powerhouse. So I hope that you check you check out the whole festival because it's so I mean, it's it's what it is. It's what it sounds like, the faces of America. So you you have voices from all walks of life and I just thought it was a fascinating collection. So so bravo to the Playground Experiment for putting the call out for all the playwrights who submitted. I think there were like over 500 entries um so it, it was a lot, but um, and I'm very honored and privileged to be uh, to be selected along with uh, Lucy and Mark and other fabulous writers. And um, so we'll definitely put that link in the show notes so you can check it out because, man, it's just it's so fun to see the work. And, you know, it's there's humor, there's heartbreak, there's everything in between. I'm going to have to go and watch all of them. I saw yours and it was so so good she did the actress did a wonderful job no yes um all right tori what do we got coming up in 2023 this is like this is it what are the goals because i have some very clear goals what's happening for me in 2023 i'm gonna just tell you i'm gonna i'm gonna just go in 2023 i am putting myself on a shoe and clothing moratorium (laughs) there will be no new shoes and no new clothes. I will not be purchasing anything new because enough's enough. I purchased my final pair of shoes of 2022 yesterday. Do you want to see them? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, hold on. Because we had them in the show notes, right? Are these the ones? We sure did. Oh, let's see. What I did not expect, Tori, is that they would come in this amazing packaging. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Oh, is that the like the title? It's the logo of Cobra Kai. Vans come in the checker boxes or in the brown and red boxes. They don't come like this, Tori. This is special. Right. This is special. Yeah. It's like a work of art. It is a work Let's of see art. The shoe. Look at that. Look at that gorgeousness. 
Oh, everybody. Miyagi the Go. Shoes Miyagi Go Karate. Incredible. Miyagi. Yeah. And then it says Reseda on one shoe, on the heel oh. of the shoe. And then it says Okinawa on the other. Oh, ah! my gosh. Wow. So, yeah. anyway. So that's, but that's it. No more shoes from for for me until maybe 2024. Maybe ever, Tori. Maybe ever. I don't <laughs> believe that <laughs> because I know you, <laughs> but okay, let's see how you do with the moratorium. And how about you? I don't know. What are your big goals for 23? My big goal is to finally, I hope this wasn't my goal last year, because if it was, I did not achieve it. It's to get my office in order. Oh, Was that my goal last year? It may have been, but I mean. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not going to go back and listen. I don't want to break my own heart. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, it's better than it was last year. I have made some progress, but it, it's a it's it's a system of puzzle pieces that has to be done. The first piece is the garage, mm. and I've been telling my husband, I'm like, if the garage isn't organized, I can't even move the stuff that's in here to the garage. So. I was looking at the Home Depot website, trying to find shelving to put out there, you know, in addition to a new dishwasher. Like, it's just been a day. <laughs> but that's my <laughs> my goal is to is to finally learn to let go of some things that it, I have been really good about going on um, Facebook. There's a there's a group and you might have one in your area called Buy Nothing. And if you join the group in your area, what it is, is it's kind of like a free store. People are getting rid of stuff and you can post things that you're getting rid of. And there's nice things that people put up. There's some, a lot of it is like clothes for kids and stuff like that. But you put it up and somebody will come and take it away. You give it away to whoever. Yeah. So you can, um, without overcomplicating it, like if you have 20 people that say, yes, I want that item. I've been doing like a picker. Okay, so-and-so you want, and I send them a private message and say, here's where you can pick it up. But you know, in life, it's it's it suffers from the same thing that Craigslist does and offer up and some of those places where people are flaky. Oh, yeah, I want that thing. And then three days go by and it's been sitting out. Mm. So I try to make sure hey can you come today you know, like people do a flash give and they put it up there and you know try to get rid of it right away like sadie's cleaning out her room so i'm going to put a lot of her stuff up there you know it's a it's a i'm not going to be having any yard sales <laughs> yeah so it's a come and get it here it is yeah type good. of a jam yeah mm -hmm. so that's my that's my main goal. Purging. Uh, purging. Yeah. Me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this will start after January first. <laughs> I need to get through the new through the weekend. Through the weekend. A lot going on. Yes. A lot we have going a, on. We have a we have a Ron Rice painting and consulting company party Yay! at the bowling alley tonight. Yay! Uh, Sadie is going to do her first behind the wheel in about an hour. Yay! Do guys come into our house to pick us up? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of stuff going on. I'm working on 
an outline for a new play and I I'm in the painful the painful moments right now where it's like this doesn't make sense how do I make this make sense but luckily it's like an outline and it's very rough you know what I appreciate about all that Tori is that you are playwriting with purpose I see what you did did there. there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I see that. So today's guest, (laughs) today's guest is somebody that we admire not only as a playwright, but as an educator. We think that their books, because now they have two books, right? Um, Playwriting with Purpose and... Writing adaptations and translations for the stage. We think that they are wonderful texts and we you should totally go get them. As a person who has recently worked on an adaptation and is now working on a translation, I highly recommend these books. And, um, and we had just a wonderful conversation. Now, this conversation was recorded, I feel like, three billion years ago. I think uh, this interview uh, was recorded on the eve of the release of writing adaptations and translations for the stage. So uh, it should now be very easily available, this book. So go get your copy and enjoy the wisdom, knowledge, and general enchantment that is... All a part of who Jacqueline Goldfinger brings to the world. So, Tori, without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Jacqueline Goldfinger. Jacqueline Goldfinger, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We're so excited to talk with you. There's so much to get to. So, like, let's let's go for it. Let's dive right in. Yes. So, um, Jacqueline, uh, do you prefer to be called Jackie or Jacqueline? Jackie's fine. Go for it. Okay. All right, Jackie, we would love to hear how you came to playwriting. Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really honored. I'm a huge fan. So when I got your email, I was just over the moon. I'm like, I'm going to be on Hey Playwright. And I was very excited. So thank you for having me. And my journey into playwriting, I think, is a little different than most most folks I know, which is cool. Um, I grew up near Tallahassee, Florida, and rural North Florida, where there aren't any professional theaters. So um, my main exposure to theater were things like we'd occasionally have a traveling company and perform a short play in our elementary school auditorium and things like that. A little bit of community theater occasionally. Um, But for me, since I didn't kind of have that experience of being in the theater, I really, starting very early, starting in like second, third grade, I loved writing poetry and stories. And I won a couple of kid-like writing competitions when I was young, which really boosted my confidence that like this was something I was good at and could do. And eventually my stories kept becoming more and more dialogue heavy until they were really all dialogue with some narrative description that are actually stage directions, but I didn't know that's what they were called at the time. So, uh, and I was very lucky to have a middle school teacher who was like, so you're not writing short fiction anymore. (laughs) You're writing something called a play. And at that point, I was one of those people, I was one of those kids who was like, oh, I just thought like, when the traveling troupe came, performed something at the school, which shout out to 
all of the theater companies who travel and bring um, theater to places where there aren't any in this country. It's huge. It makes an enormous impact. Thank you. Um, but when I saw those performances in the auditorium, I really just thought that, like, the actors made up the words. Like, I had no idea there was this entire team behind it. Um, so I come at, at theater from more of a literature background where I didn't really see any professional plays till I was in high school. And we had a teacher who took us to Alabama Shakespeare Festival, which is about five hours from where I lived, and got to see incredible work by Shakespeare and Tennessee Williams and primarily kind of the white male, what are sometimes considered canonical playwrights, but still just seeing the words brought to life on stage after having read them for years in books was magical. And it really taught me a lot about, oh, I understood the play one way on the page when I've been reading them this past couple of years, but I understand them a completely different way now that it's staged. And so in uh, late high school, I started writing plays and I kept on it in college. And I was lucky enough to go to Agnes Scott College in Atlanta, which has a great theater scene. Um, and so that's how I came to it. But it was much more literary based. And then understanding how the performance element changed the words. When did you have your first production yeah, it was actually in high school. Our, uh, I was very lucky. We, uh, so we didn't have a drama program until I was a junior, and then they hired a drama teacher. I mean, we had six football coaches. Of course. <laughs> of course. Right? Of course. <laughs> right. Zero drama teachers. Um, you know, uh, so it was one of those things where we just didn't have one, and, uh, but we had an English teacher my freshman and junior year. Uh, named Miss Pelham, who was amazing. She would do things like read Shakespeare aloud to us so we could get a sense of the rhythm and things. Uh, but when I was a junior, uh, they started a drama program and Mrs. Spears came in and she was the one who said, if you want to do this, you actually have to see it on stage. Like you can't just do it on paper because at the end of the day, no one's buying a ticket to come read your play, no matter how beautiful it is, they're coming to see it. And putting it on the stage makes it, changes things entirely. So I was very lucky. She uh, really let us, we had a couple of set productions, like we did a Shakespeare and we did a, you know, but in general, she would also let us who were interested in writing and creating our own work, write our own work and put it up with students in the auditorium uh, during our class time. So it was this really lovely mix of her sharing work that was kind of considered a classic and then us being allowed the space and time to create our own work. So when I was a junior in high school, I had my first like student production. It was a one act. It was about, uh, it was called on the, Parch on the Park Bench Beside Me. And it was about a woman who got stuck at a bus stop because the bus was running late. And there was a homeless person sitting next to her on the bench. And then, so at first she was really scared of the homeless person. And then the homeless person started to tell parts of the story. And then by the end of the one act, they were, they were friends because they understood who they were as people. So it was very like beginning, middle end, Western style with a lesson or moral at the end. Um, and it was hugely impactful for me to see my words actually physically on the stage. And I just got addicted <laughs> to seeing it on the stage because I liked it so much better than what was written on the page that I was like, oh, yes. So for me, 
the process of writing is not complete until it's in production because I just, that's where I love it the most. Um, but yeah, so, and then in, I, and so I started really in high school and then I kind of continued that in college and then started doing, producing my own stuff in fringes and things like that after college. Wow. You said that the, this first play that you wrote might've followed more of that well-made play structure, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So when did you start to play with structure and magical realism and uh, uh, yeah <laughs> when yeah. did you start to do that so that really um I started a little bit in college I think mainly because I was exposed to more pieces uh being in Atlanta of course I got to be exposed to the wonderful work of Pro Clegg um being in the south you know there were so many influences that were also not theater you know we read a lot of faulkner and o'connor and hurston um walker those type of people so it i think a lot of when i started exploring the magical realism in college was really more of understanding it from again the literary point of view and putting that on stage and then starting to realize, oh, there's this whole tradition of whether you call it magical realism, whether you see it's just like another layer of reality, however you want to explain it. And for me, uh, because I really am a Southern storyteller at heart, and so I really like the beginning, middle and end Western style, although I think I like to also play with it in terms of using different aesthetics and using different stories and layering stories. Um, so that my plays now often have a very general beginning, middle, and end, but they have all of these other ideas layered on top of one another, um, which makes them a little, a little less traditional than like your, your living room drama. You know, one thing that I appreciated so much, uh, Jackie, about this book that you wrote, Playwriting with Purpose, which is a guide and workbook for new playwrights. What, and it is just... Uh, full of wonderful exercises. And what I love about these exercises in this book is that they are deceptively simple. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. I look and I go, wow, why did this is, why didn't I think to try this before? Wow. You know, just so, but, but, but so, um, uh, uh Oh, I, I don't want to give it away. I want people to buy this book because people need to buy people this need book. to buy this Thank book. Thank you. Be yes. Because um, I, what I also like is, is you're doing these exercises step by step. And then it, it's like, I don't want to say you trick people into writing a play, but, <laughs> but, but it's like, but if you get through those first um, eight chapters, you will have a play. Have the, you'll have a play and you won't, you're like, oh, one day you just go, oh, wait a minute. I have, I have 80 pages, you know, but yes, that's but the goal. That is the goal. But what, what I appreciate is that you say you can do anything on stage. Oh, so absolutely. I would really, I want you to talk about that because I feel like so many times when we are in classes, we are told you can't do that on stage. And then it kind of takes the air out of your sales to have somebody sales, sales, you know, sales, sales. Yes. Yes. sales. And, people, and, and people often tell us like, write to be produced, right? Like yes. there are, there are limitations. So if you write, 
the which is interesting, Jackie, because I'm taking a class with you right now, right? The, yes, uh, we're having so genre. much fun. Yes, and it's and it's about writing sci-fi and horror and all this, you know, and it's like, what can you do with that? Um, but like, but there, but we have heard Tori and I have definitely heard people say like, write to be produced. Like, if you're gonna write something crazy, it's not gonna happen. Like, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So, can you talk to that? Yes, I have a firm belief after traveling the country for twenty years and working on primarily new plays as both a dramaturg and a playwright and an educator that there is a community for every play and a play for every community. And a big part, in my opinion, of being successful as a playwright is finding that community that embraces your voice and lifts it up. And that community may be where you live, but it may not be where you live, right? And so I encourage folks when they're starting out on their playwriting journeys, First, to read and see as much as you can. Whether or not you think it's your aesthetic, you're always going to learn things. And also, once you start reading and seeing a lot, or as much as you can, um, start finding your kissing cousins. <laughs> you know, start finding pieces and playwrights that like, oh, I don't write this exact thing. But what I'm interested in lies in the universe of this playwright. You know, my work lies in the um, pop culture uh, realm of Adam Simkowitz and Quinn Nijin. My, my, you know, whatever that is. And then look and see where those people are produced. And mm. where those people are produced the most are probably areas that have audiences that are interested in what you're doing. So a lot of it is just finding the right community to work in um, because it's so funny to me. Um, I'm a big fan of Peter Brooks who recently passed away. He was a, a, a British educator and a theater director who changed, changed theater. Um, and he did some dramaturgy. And one of the, he made art with communities all over the world from art and very small communities in rural areas up to the main stages in London. And so one of the things I learned from watching his trajectory and journey is that it is really about finding the right space, physical space, emotional space, intellectual space for your work. Um, and, and that is, I think, where you uh, get into some stickiness with playwriting teachers who are like, mm -hmm. like that can't be produced. Well, anything could be produced. Uh, like if you if you have a wide enough knowledge of information about the performing arts around the world, like everything can be done. But I also think that because Americans, uh, our golden age of playwriting was very much grounded in realism and naturalism and literalism, that we are not always trained to think more broadly about how theater is unique and how we can create unique experiences on stage that are utterly personal and also utterly theatrical and exceed any expectation of the naturalism or literalism that came from our golden age of, you know, O'Neill and Williams, et cetera, uh, Lorraine Hansberry and um, Alice Childress. Um, because it is absolutely possible. I, I just worked on a play at the Kennedy Center, which was an adaptation of A Wind in the Door. 
Yes. Which is yes. Yes, which is incredibly like sci-fi forward. Right. And so, you know, thinking about, okay, we are not filming TV. And that's great because it means we have a whole other toolbox to pull from. So in the book, uh, two of the main adventurers walk through the eye of a supernatural character to get to another realm. So in TV and film, you do that more literally, probably. But on this stage, what does walking through an eye mean underneath? What it means underneath is going into someone's experience at, a, at the level of the soul, right? The eyes are the window to the soul. So what does that look like? What does it look like to go through and embody someone else's experience in someone else's world, right? And so it was this beautiful movement moment, moment where they still talked about walking through the eye, but what they physically did on stage was a dance movement with a cloak, And then when they were on the other side of the cloak, they'd walked through the eye. And you knew that simply by a cloak and movement. And so when people say you can't do that on stage, often it's because they're thinking very literally, which is kind of our classic tradition in American theater. But that's not actually everything you can do on stage. Right. So thinking about when you're staging a moment that has been called unstageable thinking about, okay, I know what this moment is literally, but what does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What images does it evoke? And using the answers to those questions to create what you literally see on stage. I think that is is a way to think about staging these types of work. Oh, that is just, uh, uh, when you were talking about creating the experience it is do you feel like then when you're writing I mean you're you're definitely you're telling it um or you're you're showing it through action through dialogue but then um do you then just in your stage directions or notes give the the director and the other collaborators right because theater Mm -hmm. is a collaborative experience agency to create those moments i do because otherwise why am i writing for theater if i want everything done the same way every time i should go write for tv and film and make a lot more money (laughs) unfortunately (laughs) i'm addicted to this thing called live performance (laughs) And I think one of the tricky things about live performance for a lot of writers is that it often 90% of the time means giving over your initial ideas for expansion by other people. Now that excites me, but I know it can also be very scary for many people. Um, And so I think what I tend to do when I um, am working with collaborators, what I look for are people who understand the material but also have new ideas about the material. Because if I had all the ideas, then I could just do a one-person show and direct it myself. I do not have all the ideas, which is exciting, because it makes room for this incredible array of ideas and wonders and curiosities that I never would expect. So in order to make space for them physically on the page and to invite them more into the process, What I do is typically in first, second, and third drafts, I write out pretty extensive stage directions. Um, Most of those are really for me. 
so that I understand the world and I know what my characters are literally facing. And then as I revise, I continually cut down stage directions and cut down and cut down. And my my personal goal, and this is not for everyone, but but my personal goal at the end is to really have simple stage directions that evoke the moment, evoke the feeling and the idea of the moment in the characters, mm-hmm. rather than literal move this way, move this way, jump on the bed. That way, there is space for them to come in and create in the script. And I have very clearly indicated I am leaving the space for you. So what does that look like literally on the page? So in, in later drafts, what that looks like is like, for example, there was a couple, a husband and a wife, having a fight in bed. And the stage direction in the middle of the fight, there's only one stage direction, in the middle of the fight when it climaxes, the stage direction is she wonders if she kicks him in the head, if she would be tried for murder, right? And then they go on with the fight. <laughs> and it's not about creating a big acting moment. It's about creating the feeling of this is where the fight, how the fight, far the fight has escalated. And this is the feelings they're having. And now this is the climax. What's the denouement of the fight? Where, where is it going? Right? So... Earlier, my stage directions, again, just to recap, are more literal because I I am trying to figure out for myself what the space looks like. But as I revise, I cut them down and lean more into the feeling, the emotion, um, which this which people who are coming in the audience will never literally see. But they will probably see in the performance of the actors, which is really what's most important, because, again, they don't come to read your play. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, you talk in in your book, again, in Playwriting with Purpose about revision and keeping all of those drafts. And yes. I thought I thought that was such a good note, because I know Mabel and I have worked with people when when we're doing teaching artist work that Oh, I just threw that away. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I gasped. What? Don't do that. Hold on to those drafts. Yes. So, so I I really love all of these tips that you are giving along the way to new and seasoned playwrights about how to protect your work, um, yes. exercises to do to get you back in the game and inspiration and all of that. So just in general, why did you write a book about playwright? I mean, there's lots of books out there about playwriting. So what inspired your your book? Well, I want to say there are lots of great books about playwriting, but specifically I wrote my book because what I found personally was that when I was coming up and developing more of my voice, and of course my voice is still always in development, I'm always learning, but what, especially when I was coming up, I did not have access um, to a lot of the foundational knowledge that many of the playwriting book writers assumed, Right. Like I remember reading a book and I don't know which one it was, uh, but it was a book where all of the examples were from Hamlet. Mm. And now I could read that book and really appreciate it. But at the time, 
I wasn't well-versed in Hamlet, and I'd never seen it staged. And so, like, there was no way that I could connect the material and access it and then understand what I was literally supposed to do. So what I wanted to do with my book was create a place where writers can come who may not have the, you know, the grad school backstory or even the undergrad backstory of theater and can pick it up and can pick up all the basic things they need all the basic tools in their two walks will give it to them using examples that are included in the text. So you can read the example and then read the writing prompt and have, and, and sometimes I even get examples from the writing prompt of where you can go so that playwriting is accessible to everyone across the board, regardless of experience level. And again, if you're someone who has like a master's in theater or has these other degrees and other experiences even, Go for the more complex books. I still read playwriting books, right? I think it's great. We should always be learning and growing. But what I found was missing in the literature was a place where people, like I started out, where I was really interested in it, but I hadn't had the luxury of seeing a lot of shows, um, could start and understand what it means to write 3D, right? Understand what it means to write theatrically. And so what I also hope is that um, I also include a chapter about the business and industry of theater, which I, I think yes. is very important, especially because we live in a capitalist society. So whether or not you like it, because there's not broad support for the arts financially, that means we have to learn how to sell our own work, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. There are a couple of people, right, like a 5% who like come out of grad schools and immediately their work is picked up. And that is awesome. I say run for it and pass it forward. But for most of us, it's a little more of a step by step slog. And so how do you sell yourself and your work in a way that's not gross and feels authentic and organic, but does get your work onto the stage? Um, and that's something I haven't seen even in playwriting programs. And I was like, why are we not teaching this? Because it's an important part. Yes. Can I just tell you that there's, seriously, people need to buy this book. And I don't care if you're like, Thank like you. if you're new to playwriting or if you've been doing it for a long time, because what you offer, Jackie, is a comprehensive list of plays, not yes. just, not yes. just like Hamlet, not just like, O'Neill right. and you know the old school but like actual contemporary plays by a diverse um a, a spectrum of playwrights from all over I think it's fabulous and something that I so I write an emerging writers workshop and what I have found very useful to share with them is the the sample letters that were the the, yes. the the copy for like how to apply for workshops and like, and just these cover letters, they're like, cause when you're starting out, you have no idea. Like I have, I have to write a cover letter. Like, what am I supposed to say? And that to me, I, that, that alone is worth like getting the book. Like there's just so many great things there, but those two things I find to be extremely invaluable. So everybody get this book. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I just want to say one more thing about the breadth of, re I'm, I really appreciate you recognizing the breadth of reading that is recommended in the book, everyone from classical works up to literally last year. And just the idea, we are the only industry, and I say industry as in like the theatrical complex, but we are the only people who think you can 
teach techniques from the early 1900s and that is the only thing that's there like it you teach nothing in terms of contemporary work and that's crazy to me my daughter's a graphic designer she has a bfa in graphic design and she learned about wood prints and all of that early graphic design work but she spent the majority of time looking at graphic design for the past 50 years right because that's the industry she's going into so i just want to say yes read the classical works that's great but make sure that you're also looking at work being produced today because <laughs> otherwise Years. you're just not going to know what's on the stage. Yeah. It's wild. It's, it's so funny. It seems obvious, right? <laughs> like, but no, you no. would think. And Mabel, when you were saying that, Mabel and I always joke, get out of my head because one of the things that I truly appreciated was the list because even as I was reading, I recognized some of the names, but Many of them I didn't, and it makes me want to go and read that play to see what that structure looks like, to see how that story oh, unfolded, how that monologue was crafted. I want to learn, you know, Mabel and I both are constantly, we're just eager to uh, be in in conversations with with amazing playwrights like you, amazing theater makers. And I, I'm just going to say right now, I am a little jealous that I'm not in the class. She is. So she is. Next time around, I'm <laughs> yeah. <a> little, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're having a pretty great time. I have to say. It is a good a group. group. Oh I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> next got time. FOMO. I'll be in it next time. I totally have FOMO. Yes. Um, but that's a, but that's a good thing. So everybody listening again, um, Jackie teaches classes. And so you, you can get the secret sauce in a class. Jackie, oh, go. You, you're starting yes. a, 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 a new class, right? And at the university. What? Right. Okay. I'm, I know. I'm so excited. I'm so thrilled. So I, right now I'm teaching with Drama to Skilled Institute, uh, which Woo-hoo. is where we met. It's great. <laughs> Um, but I've been invited for a special one-year visiting professorship appointment to Indiana University. And so I'm going to be working with their MFA dramaturgy and playwriting students wow. to help help get them, launch them into the world. And I'm so thrilled because I think that I mean, dramaturgy and playwriting go hand in hand in many ways. Um, but also the idea that in addition to the teaching part, I get to help launch them into the professional world is just such a unique and special opportunity to be there at this point in their lives. Um, so yes, I'll be up at IU for this school year, which I'm really excited about. And are you going to be there physically or is it over Zoom? Actually, I will be there physically. (gasps) So I'm going to do this crazy thing where I am going to commute between Philly and Bloomington for the next year. Wow. What is the what does the travel <laughs> look like for that? It's about an hour on the plane. Um okay. But they're they're covering my travel. So it's not every day, right? We have different weeks mm-hmm. we're going back and forth. So some of it'll be on Zoom, but for the ma- majority of it I'll be there in person. And I I really my dream one day, because I like to put things out in the air and maybe they'll come. My dream one day is to create an MFA program that is an MFA in playwriting and dramaturgy. Uh-huh. All of them. Because I do feel that those two go together so well that the fact that we don't have any MFA that encompasses both seems crazy to me. So uh, this is another step in my journey towards creating a program like that one day. 
That sounds Ooh. amazing. Um, Sign me up. But speaking <laughs> of journey, um, you are at a very exciting point in your journey because you are about to drop your second book, right? Yes. The I'm so excited. So it comes out on August 16th, which I'm super excited about. Wait, and say it, the name. Say the name real quick. Oh, it's called Writing Adaptations and Translations for the Stage. And it's a guide and workbook for new and experienced writers. And I, my co-author is Allison Horsley, who you probably know. Uh, she is a translator for most of the larger Broadway productions of Russian plays. Uh, she's an incredibly accomplished translator. And this actually came out of Playwriting with Purpose. Um, and Playwriting with Purpose, I wanted to do a chapter on adaptations, but it was just too much information. Like, they're like, it'd be like a book and a half, which would be weird. Um, so I'd worked with Allison uh, years ago. I was actually her assistant dramaturg uh, on some projects. And I know she'd moved into translations. And so I contacted her and I was like, Allison, this was an area that people are interested in, but there's just, it won't fit in the first book. Would you be up to co-authoring a second book? Because I know you've been teaching how to write translations. So you have all that material. And then we could do writing adaptations and translations. Um, both for people who want to do one or the other. But also often translations, often uh, there are adaptations that are translated and vice versa. So it just makes sense to group those two together. And that comes out on October 16th. Ah. I mean, August 16th. Ah. Oh, wait a minute. That's in just a That's, couple yes, of days. Yes, we said it in two days. Yay. Wow. Yay. So, so in this book, can you talk about the size? There is something unique about this book. Yes. Yes. One of the things I learned, right? We're always on a learning journey. It's very exciting. Right. If I ever stop learning, just shoot me in the head because then I'm done. <laughs> Uh, but what I did, what I learned from the first book, Playwriting with Purpose, was that people wanted to make notes in the margins and and highlight things and do some of the shorter writing prompts in the margins, and there was no space. So for the second book, Writing Adaptations and Translations for the Stage, we, we publish it in a larger format so that now people have larger margins on all sides. So if you want to make this a very literal workbook, where you do almost everything within the book itself, you can do that. You don't even need another sheet of paper. Uh, you can just do the book itself. Wow. Love it. Love it. Okay. So I guess like quick fire, because again, people need to go buy these books. But like, what is, if, if uh, somebody is like, hey, Jackie, I've been commissioned to do an adaptation. This is like my asking for a friend, right? Because I'm literally, Jackie, I'm literally <laughs> working on an adaptation and a translation. Um, Yay! But uh, I'm starting out doing an adaptation. Like, what do I need to uh, to keep in mind when I'm uh, as I'm starting out this project? What what kind of advice would you give to someone who's just starting out? Absolutely, the first piece of advice is to ask yourself why. Why do I like this piece? What in it connects with me? Why do I feel like I need to write this piece now? And that's so incredibly important uh, for many reasons, but mainly because um, if people can just go and read the book, what's the point of you adapting it? Read the poems, what's the point of you adapting it, right? We're always thinking, what makes this unique for the stage? And so uh, 
what makes it unique for the stage is your point of view and how it's going to connect with audiences today, especially when you're looking at adapting or translating pieces that are much older. Um, I always use the example of To Kill a Mockingbird because it's so clear. In the original To Kill a Mockingbird adaptation, it was uh, the plot was much uh, more clearly connected to the plot of the book. And one of the reasons for that is because it was, while it was well known as a book, it was not as well known to theater goers in many ways. And so having a more direct adaptation made sense. But when Aaron Sorkin wanted to bring it to Broadway, having that same connection of literal adaptation from book to stage didn't make as much sense. It's now a classic book. Everyone reads it in high school. Um, it's just so well known. And so what Sorkin did was say, okay, what makes this story unique for today? And why am I interested in telling it? Hmm. And what he came to, and I did not make this up, this is from interviews. So just Google Aaron Sorkin Mockingbird interviews and all of them will come up. Um, but what he says in interviews is that he said, what I was really interested in was this idea of progressive people, because I think I'm socially progressive, but I still screw up. I'm still still caught in a lot of the white supremacist thinking, just because that's been imprinted on my brain. So while the, his adaptation on Broadway does tell the general arc of the book story, he focuses it more on the older white man who thinks he's liberal and then comes to this realization he's not and how that impacts his family and how that impacts the, the black woman who works in his house. And like, look at, so, which is something that's so potent today, right? We're talking about toxic masculinity. We're talking about the fragility, especially white male fragility. We're talking about progressive people not being as progressive as they think they are. And so he creates a piece that we are familiar and comfortable with in the entire arc, but then he asks some really uncomfortable questions within that comfortable arc, which is why I think it has been so successful. Not only is it beautifully written and acted and designed, I mean, it's Barlow Cheer's production is incomparable, um, but also because people come thinking they know what they're going to get mm. and then they get what they want to get, but they also get these other questions asked and that makes it very of today and very, uh, it, it makes them go home and ask some of these questions or over dinner after the show that they may not have thought of and that are very contemporary and relevant. So oh. I always say the first things, why are you adapting this? What is your connection with it? And why tell it now? Mm. And in the book, Writing Adaptations, one of the things that I do is I take you through the steps of brainstorming for an adaptation. And then we go into writing for adaptation. But the first chapter is brainstorming because adaptation, as opposed to original work, like original work, there's usually a lot of backstory writing. You're figuring out the characters. Some people write the first scene and then figure out more of the characters, however you do it. But in adaptations, because there's so much existing material, it, you have to start with the why is this important to me and why do we mm. tell this now? Because that's not built in necessarily to your process. So for this book, we start with brainstorming and then move to writing and then move to production.
<sighs> Wonderful. Once again, tricking us into writing an adaptation. I know. I, know. <laughs> I love it. So subversive. I, <laughs> I love how you, well, I also love how you say it's tricking because it makes me chuckle because one of the things my dad said, I used to get really overwhelmed as a kid by big projects and I would get so overwhelmed that I would like be paralyzed. Mm. Like ask me to do a science <laughs> project and I would just like sit in shock like a deer in headlights and wanted to throw up, right? Like I got really overwhelmed by these big things. And so one of the things my father taught me he's like just break it down it's just one step then one step then one step bird by bird yeah bird by bird uh pete seeger's inch by inch row by row right like and so i think that one of my goals with both of these books is that it is really step by step so yes i'm tricking you into writing a player adaptation but also like it just breaks it down into manageable chunks so you don't get overwhelmed because it is a really big task and it's an exciting challenge, but it's also big. So how can I help people learn how to break it down for themselves? Um, I think is important. Yes. Oh, we appreciate you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I know we're, we're nearing time, but I did want to ask because I love what you said about creating an MFA program. Yes, it's yes. going out to the universe. Yes. Out that, to the universe. That, that that includes a dramaturgy as as one of the um, facets, the important yeah. uh, cementing facets. Um, and it made me wonder: Can you talk about how reading plays has informed how you approach uh, dramaturgy and your own playwriting? Absolutely. I always recommend read as much as you can. And if you can read for um, a competition, uh, like the Eugene O'Neill Center has hundreds of readers who reads for their summer, um, for their summer new play festival. So you can be one of those readers, right? But I do think that one of the way reasons I understand playwriting from the inside out is because I started as an educator and dramaturg. And then as the literary associate for La Jolla Playhouse, I mean, we got over a thousand submissions a year because we had an open submission policy. And there was me and there was the literary manager and the literary manager was often working on individual shows that we were putting out. So I'm not saying I read a thousand plays a year. I will say I read like the first 10 pages of many of those thousand plays and then the rest of the plays for the ones I thought were moving forward. Um But after that experience, and then after my experience at PTC, where we got about 600 open submission plays a year, um, and spending six years doing that, like, I just got a really great sense of, oh, this is something that works. This doesn't work. It's so clear when you put that many plays back to back. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. And and the it also helped me understand how to talk to playwrights mm-hmm. um, and understand how to talk about my own writing. Because when I was doing literary management, I was really I was really like half a toe in playwriting because the reality is you can't make a living as a playwright. Right. Um, even Tony Kushner has talked about that's just not you just can't do it. It's not sustainable because you have so many years of ups and downs and fluxes. So. All playwrights I know have some kind of second job, whether it's in education or TV or doing something else entirely, you know. Um, 
So when I was a literary associate, it was harder to find time to write. But in the end, it was the perfect job because I spent basically it's my grad school education. I just spent a couple years doing nothing but reading plays and having to talk about and evaluate them. Um, So I feel very, very lucky for my time there. Mm. That's the dream job, right, Tori? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Well, you can do it for free for many, many yeah. companies. Look at look at theater companies in your uh, in your area, and whoever does not have a literary manager, email them and say, "Do you need things read?" Because I will. I'm sure they would love the help. That's awesome. All right, Tori, you have an asking for a friend for Jackie. I do, I do, and this was inspired by your play, Babel. Oh, thank you. Yes, which, oh my gosh, everybody, you must read this play. Actually, even better, if you can see the play. Oh, I so, we wanted to go and see your play. Uh, oh, at CATF? They did a yeah. gorgeous job. Well, there was just a really nice roster. I mean, oh my yeah. gosh, they were doing Jesus play. Like, and they did Cheese yes. Dogs. Uh, yeah, no, that was. Yeah. Oh my God, yes. Would have it was loved- a great year. Yeah, so. Uh, I am confident, though, that we will get an opportunity to see it. So this is inspired by that. Here's the question. Jackie, if you could get advice from an animal or object, what animal or object would it be and why? Oh, that's so good. I would love to get, so I've recently been to New Orleans, which is a city I love. I try to go every couple of years. The music is fantastic. The people are fantastic. The food's fantastic. Um, I would love to be one of those those Victorian red, um, like, uh, Madam's lamps with, like, the crystals hanging down and one of the bordellos. Because I just think there would be so many crazy stories. Um, I think that would be really, really fun. Um, but yes, pretty much anything in New Orleans is going to have a history and a story. But mm. I think of a, a, a Victorian lamp thing. <gasps> oh, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Just you saying that I could totally picture it. Totally. Too. I wonder what I wonder what it would say oh to you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Fascinating. Oh my gosh. Mm. Jackie, do you have a writing prompt to leave our listeners with? Yes. Um, I've been listening to back episodes because, you know, I love this show. And I thought, absolutely, it's great. And I thought I hadn't seen a writing prompt in a while that was like a get you unstuck prompt. So do you th- would it be help to get you unstuck? Prompt? Oh, my gosh. That's always. Yes. Those are the best kind. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So my get you unstuck prompt is a prompt. Don't think about it as writing a whole new piece or about even writing something for your piece. Just think of it as a palate cleanser. And something may or may not come up in the prompt that you use later, which would be cool, but that's not really what it's for. It's like an aperitif. It's like clean your mind so you can open it up a little. So here's the prompt. Go to a museum or look through a book, uh, magazines you like. Find a physical picture that has a person or animal in it that you love. Then find about half an hour where you're not going to be interrupted. And look at that picture deeply. Like, don't let yourself write for like five minutes. Just sit and look 
How does the light strike the person or animal? What are the contours? Look at what they're wearing. Look at the colors in the background. Are there trees? Are there no trees? Really take in every detail of the picture. And then sit down and spend about 20 minutes just answering the five primary questions, right? Who are they? What are they doing? Why are they here? How are they doing it? Or how are they approaching it? Why is it important to their life, right? And you'll end up with an array of answers. And then just think about, okay, let me write, then take those array of answers and write a monologue, just stream of conscience, about what the person is doing in the picture now from their point of view. And, and then stop. You can look back at it. You can choose not to look back at it. You can put it in a drawer and hold it for later, whatever you want to do. But I found that often freeing my mind of like the constant churning of what I'm working on and giving myself some other stimulation of something besides words and, and working with that, it often kind of clears my mind. And then usually after that exercise, I won't write for another day or two. I just let that sit and soak in and be like, clean my mind. And then a couple of days later, I come back to the piece I've been working on. And a lot of it just helps me refresh and renew. Um, Jose Rivera used, uh, says in many of his writings that if you get stuck, if you have, there's no such thing as writer's block, that really all it is is your characters have started lying to themselves and you and you have to find the truth before you can continue writing. And so one of the things I do find this helps is not only clear my kind of mental palette, which is useful, but also I come back and I look at what I've been working on with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And often I see, oh, he's pretending to like his sister and he doesn't. Or, oh, I forced him to go to the Capitol with these protesters, but that's not actually what this character would do. Mm. So it also helps me gauge whether or not I'm being honest with my characters or if I'm putting something on them, but that's not useful. <sighs> Fantastic. Oh my gosh. Ah, I love that. I, I, I love a, a fresh way to approach writer's block because people say, oh, I have writer's block or what do you do? Right, Mabel? Haven't you been asked before oh, yeah. by a, a student? Like, what What do you do for writer's block? So I love, I love what Jose says, but I love what you're saying about just taking a step away from it so that you can really see yes. what might be stopping you from moving forward. That's great. Absolutely. And the other thing I say is, is uh, if, if it helps, is that a lot of the people are a number of my students who've had writer's block. It's also because they're being too self-critical. Mm -hmm. And so I say, write something that no one else is going to see. There is no one, including mm -hmm. you, who is going to criticize this. Just write what you want and fuck everybody else. I don't need to see it. Your colleagues don't need to see it. But sometimes it's also because there's something you need to write. But that self-critical thing is oppressing your ability to write because you're afraid to write it. So write write it, and it may not be something you want to share with anyone, but it just helps you work through it. Yeah. Ugh. Love it. Love it. Oh, my goodness. Such great, great advice. 
See, Tori, this is what you're Thank missing you out so on. Much. This is what you miss out on in class. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna make it into the next class. I'm tell you what. It's I'm gonna good. I'm gonna fly to Indiana. Yeah, I'm gonna fly to Bloomington. Fly to Indiana. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, shout out to the Drama the Skilled Institute, which offers our students the opportunity to learn across the country online, which is super love cool. That. Um and yeah, if anyone out there is at a college and wants to start an MFA in playwriting and dramaturgy, give me a shout because I think it would be an incredible, incredible degree to offer. Yes. And where can people find you if you want to be found? You can find me on Instagram and Facebook and on my website. It's all just JacquelineGoldfinger.com. Instagram is just JacquelineGoldfinger. I think Facebook is too, but I don't know. I don't use that as much. So, but I always on JacquelineGoldfinger.com. I have an upcoming page on my website. Click the upcoming page. You can see books. You can see articles. You can see productions. Come join me. Yeah, yeah, you've got a great website. I actually I subscribed, so I Ooh. I fully expect to continue to get the secret. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm looking forward to getting your new book as well. So we'll put all of that in the show notes to let people know exactly where they can buy your books and uh upcoming productions, all of that. Yeah, did you have anything that you wanted to promote that you have coming up production-wise? Well, I'm super excited. Uh, Carnegie Mellon is going to be the first university that does Babel. And so I they're doing it this fall, and I'm so excited. And you'll get a chance to see it, right? Because it's like... Yes, because it's oh. right at the street. Ah. I'm so excited. And the Carnegie Mellon students are just phenomenal. Like, they're just a phenomenal group of young artists. Amazing. Um, and then anyone who's an opera lover, uh, I'll have an opera coming up. It hasn't been announced yet, but it's coming up in the next spring called Alice Tierney. So keep an ear to the ground for that. I was just reading about that. It sounds so fascinating. I Yeah. It's going to be fun. It's written by kind of this uh, amazing composer named Melissa Dunphy, who did... Um, who has done some more experimental and more pop cultural based operas. And she's so much fun. Um, where else are you going to hear an opera where the, one of the lines is no dick wagging, please. Like that's just not. <laughs> so come to Alice Tierney this spring when it's announced because we'll probably never be allowed to write an opera again, mainly because we include lines like that. And in the middle of the show, there's a pop opera song uh, to get you dancing. So it's going to be a blast. I don't know if they'll ever let us do this again, but it's fun. The world, yeah, the world you know is what? changing. The Listen, world is I was going to say, what I what I loved to, uh, about that line that you just said and that there's pop op- opera in it yeah. is, you know, things uh, are evolving and I love that evolution. Yes. And it would be so, a whole new generation of opera goers, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing I think people forget about opera is that originally it was made for carnivals, it, it, carnivals, as they say in mm-hmm. Venetian carnivals, right? It was made to be fun and connect with everybody and be pop and spectacular. It's only become more rigid and stayed because of the evolution of the people who pay for it, not due to the art form itself, right? Again, capitalism. Right. So you absolutely can have an opera that's like, no dick wagging, Oprah rocks, let's have a pop song in the middle. Like That's actually, in my opinion, that's actually more true to the spirit of what it was originally. 
Um, and that's not to put down the people who do opera today. It's an incredibly difficult art and they do a beautiful job, but I just think there's more we can explore. Here, here. I'm I'm gonna bring some glasses. What are those oh, little your things? Little... <laughs> yes. Yes, you I'm gonna see the little binoculars. Yeah. Those are so cool. That would be a great item to hear tell stories. Oh. Wouldn't it? <gasps> yes. That would be really yes. cool. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, I know that we could have go on and on for hours with this conversation, but we actually have class later today, Jackie. So I'm yes, looking we forward do. to tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, Tori. <laughs> but we're gonna have a great time. It's gonna be it's gonna be so much fun. But Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us today. We have learned so much from your book. I know that we're gonna learn a lot from the translations and adaptations, and then just reading your plays has just been incredible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you guys for doing this and providing an, an invaluable resource for our community. What a wonderful conversation we just had with Jackie Goldfinger. They are such a source of inspiration. And I look forward to continuing to read Playwriting with Purpose. And I really hope that we get to see one of their plays in person. Me too. I mean, on the page phenomenal so i can only imagine how great it would be in person yes and you know what else would be great tori if you could take one of their classes because they really yes. are they really are oh. a phenomenal educator and so generous and warm and and i i mean i think i said this throughout the the season as as i was taking the class with them is that the the vibe that they set up in their in the space is just so warm that there were no you know there's always the one where you're like oh yeah that person there there was none <laughs> yeah. of that in our class so I think <gasps> yes, but I think that was... you know it's creating that energy with with the the facilitator I think so I think you gotta next time Jackie offers up something on this is this goes to everyone. Anytime you can take a class from Jackie, don't hesitate because they're oh, I know. I was so wonderful. jealous. I really wanted to do it. Well, maybe I'll just have to, uh, you know, fly to Indi Indiana, go to oh. Indiana <laughs> University. Enroll so that as I can student. Enroll as a student just so that I can stock them over there. Yep. <laughs> as we do. As we do. <laughs> I realized at, at the... In our conversation, our, our intro for the last conversation that was posted, I um, I gave a shout out to San Diego Roller Derby, which is actually the one that skates out of Linda Vista. But I had the name wrong for the outdoor rink, which is ridiculous because it's the group <laughs> that I used to skate with because they changed their name. It used to be San Diego Derby Dolls. Now it is Derby United. And that is the outdoor rink. You can go and see bouts there. You can skate there. You can take lessons. That's where we're going to be going, Mabel. Tori, I just saw an ad for that yesterday, and it was like final skate of the year, and I'm like, oh no! But I, <laughs> I guess that just means that our our skating dreams will have to wait a week until 2023. Yes, that is right. We will we will make it over there. I did uh, <laughs> feel very like, oh my god, we lost our chance. We'll never be able to skate. Well, then that marketing worked on yes, you, Mabel. Totally they, they got you. I got, I felt the urgency. <laughs> So yes, I'm excited. I can't wait. That's one of the things that I really look forward to in 2023. 
Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Cool. Right on. All right. So, Tori, with that, I know that you have a ton of things to get ready for. You got to take your kid on a driving lesson. You got to go bowling later. You got to negotiate the dishwashing situation. So, uh, and you have to write a play. (laughs) So, I will leave you to it. I am so glad that I got to enjoy 2022 with you by my side as well as with our Hey Playwright listeners and audience and everyone who so graciously agreed to come on the show this year. This is not our season finale, but this is our final episode of 2022. And this is such a great episode to end the year with because there's just so much excitement and, as you said, warmth and uh, happiness. So... Yes. And with that, thank you, Jackie. Thank you, everyone. Uh, If you if you got something out of what you heard here today, please like subscribe, rate us on all the things. And we appreciate you. We do. With that. Bye, playwright. Bye, playwrights. (laughs) 